Hello, I'm Alex Dotaro. And I'm Alex Goldstein. We're a couple of TV nerds with opinions, and this is the thing that gets you to the thing, a Holding Catch Fire fan podcast. That's it. We did it. We made it to the end of season one, and we brought a bunch of you nerds with us on our own little mutiny. And even though Amazon Prime is trying to make it difficult, we will crack on with season two very soon. Before we do, we promised we would do an extra episode looking at the highs and lows of season one. And this is that episode. Quick spoiler alert. If you're watching along for the first time, we won't give anything away that happens in seasons two, three, or four. But we will talk about everything that happened in season one. So if you're still catching up, come back to this one a little bit later. As you can imagine, after picking everything apart, each episode apart individually, we've got quite a bit to say about how the whole season fits together. And we even asked Christopher Cantwell about it on Twitter, and he very helpfully obliged with some of his perspective. So we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. Now, let's crack open the cover and take a look at the inner workings. Okay, so we made it. This is it. We made it. (laughs) This is almost secretly what I've been waiting for because I feel like we always have so many thoughts and feelings around so many things that we couldn't discuss on an episode-by-episode basis. And this actually allows us to take a step back. And for those that have listened so far, know that we always try to keep it spoiler-free, but have always a little bit to say, pushing you towards this very real wrap-up episode that we're doing here. From the very beginning, like when we talked about the pilot, we talked about the fact that this is a show where the first season was a bit rocky. A lot of people who try to watch it kind of get to episode two or three, you know, three or four and kind of go, "Mm, not sure about this. And we know that coming down the line are going to be much more what we now think of as classic Halt and Catch Fire episodes. And with all of that, it's really hard then to break down that first season with its highs and lows into individual little slices and not think of them in the context of this wider season. Because I think the end of season one If you don't like the very end, like the last section of season one, I feel like you're probably not going to like what comes after that. Right. But if it sells you in those last maybe four episodes, then I feel like you kind of understand the show that you're going to be watching more of and that's going to develop from there. And some people never make it to that point. So, And we touched on this a little bit before where when the series first aired, it was live and on a weekly basis. And I recently read some interviews. I think you sent me a link where, again, the DVR catch-ups were actually telling the wider story that the live ratings were not. Mm. The show started with about a million viewers live on episode one and ended with about 500,000, so half of the viewers. So I can't blame the you know, the showrunners for feeling anxious about the show's future as they were making it. But I think it's a really interesting concept that we've touched on in the past. We touched on in the last episode about how you feel when you take a step back and you're able to actually watch everything in one go versus not knowing what each episode was going to bring. And so I think it's been a great experience just sort of re-watching and not only finding those breadcrumbs that were laid out in the beginning, but actually being able to understand maybe where the series was taking a diversion or trying to strengthen its focus. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about the fact that I binge-watched, whereas you mostly didn't or didn't ever, I don't think. I wonder if what might have put me off in season one was easier to roll over when you are literally just running from one episode to the next. I did also, I had the benefit of you in my ear going, season one has its ups and downs. You should 
just stick with it. I think it was a Guardian article that I sent to you, the one where they talk about the DVR. They also say each season is effectively a self-contained story. So you could, if you wanted to, just start at season two. And you could. I think you'd miss a lot of lovely richness that is developed in season one. I think you'd miss a lot of really beautiful episodes because we've talked a lot about how uh, Juan José Campanella's sort of set this visual tone in the first couple of episodes, picks it back up at the end, lots of other directors in between kind of making a mark in different ways. I think you'd miss a lot by skipping season one, but probably not in plot, if you see what I mean. <laughs> I've never had an issue with season one. I was hooked on the show from the very first episode. I think something about the characters, the setting and the way that it revolved around tech really drew me to the show. But it was only after talking about it with people, maybe around seasons two, three, or even four, when you have to sort of caveat your recommendation with, but get through season one first. And to be honest with you, I feel like it's only in hindsight that you're able to make these assumptions. Now, I know also a lot of people dropped off during season one and the show airing live didn't sort of help its cost by allowing you to or sort of asking asking that of the viewer right and we've seen this with other shows I mean Succession is probably the latest one where I've had to tell people it's really slow and it doesn't really make much sense until you really really sort of start going through it and it picks up in episode four or five and it picks up means different things to different people for me it picks up means you're heavily invested in the story to the point where re you really want to prioritize the show. I mean, we live in a world where with endless content, and I always recall the good old glory days of Sunday Night TV, where you had premieres from Breaking Bad to Game of Thrones to The Good Wife. So many things happening at once that you literally had to choose what you wanted to talk about the next day at work or with your colleagues or, or your mates, right? So... I really think that just overall, the first season is a great intro into the show. And to me, it's more impressive what the creators have managed to do with the first season and how quickly they managed to recalibrate the narrative and the characters versus some of the other shows that maybe don't necessarily find their groove. I mean, really, the recipe that you need is a really strong pilot, which I think the, the episode, the sorry, the series has. Absolutely. And I think that the funny thing about it is I think one of the big things you'd miss if you leapt straight in with season two is that pilot, which really, really strong pilots come along once in a while where you go, I really don't think they could have done anything more than they did. Like we picked up on a couple of little things in the pilot where we nitpicked and went, uh, maybe not that, or maybe not this, or maybe, we, but we did that with the benefit of hindsight. Like it's impossible not to register that we also knew some of the things that were coming up and thought, oh, I would have liked to see more of this and this and this in retrospect. But I really think it's a bloody good pilot. Like, I don't think you get that many really excellent pilots like that. Uh, I mentioned The West Wing a lot, another show with a really strong pilot when you're trying to introduce a hell of a lot of people all in one go and make everyone interested in what they have to do and say very quickly. And I, I don't know, I get, do you know, usually where I see the, oh, it picks up in is with comedies. Like I usually find it's with comedies where people often go, oh, the first season is not that great because you're not invested yet. To find these things funny, unless they're a laugh a minute, you've got to be slightly invested in these characters and these personalities and archetypes. It's a lot harder to do that with comedy. And also the episodes tend to be shorter. So you have much less room to do it. So for example, I love Parks and Rec. We know this. 
I don't think it really comes into its own till the end of season two. And then there's like arc of brilliance and then it drops off again after season six. And you're like, maybe we should just pretend season seven didn't happen. And But again, with Shit's Creek, which is the thing of the moment now, we watched it because of you. I just remember you came at Christmas and you got us to watch oh, yeah. it. And we were like, this is what I do, by the way. I, I force things on people. I'm physically there and I turn on the TV. I turn on TV like nomad so i was like it's okay for the first couple of episodes and then it kind of like finds its stride around episode four or five and you're like oh i understand these people a little bit more now i understand how the world works a little bit more now. i could still do without roland forever but i could i really understand kind of what's going on here and i'm beginning to warm to these people and, and find more more sense in it and i was just gonna say you're gonna laugh at me because i'm such a nerd my twitter bio used to be everything is better in season two <laughs> <laughs> and I know I've, I've <laughs> I have my moments, but it's genuinely true. I mean, there was a time, especially network TV, where after 22 episodes of a season one that had strong or weak pilots, mid-season cliffhangers, and then summer hiatuses, season two was the one where they were able to sort of look back and say, right, take this, keep that, put that right in the trash, etc. So it's very true. I don't necessarily think that is the case anymore just because the dynamic of making television has evolved from the point of view of you can be told you get x amount of episodes and you are able to craft a lovely perfectly wrapped season that really helps you uh, focus on all the things that you want to say and whether the show is good or not doesn't necessarily depend on the thread of each episode but rather the cohesiveness of the foresight of having X amount of episodes to play with in the first place. So not only do I think that because it's these kind of focused 10 episode arcs, you can have a plot that has momentum and drives kind of a story at the same time as having character development. But it also means that when when they did go a little, I don't want to say off piece, that sounds a little harsh, but when they do go a bit wobbly, it doesn't happen for very long. Like you don't really get a whole, like you get this in some sort of long, I mean, like, Buffy is probably a really good example of a great TV show that had long stretches of, huh? While they tried to work out something over a long sequence of episodes where you're like, oh God, can we really have this, this particular thing dragging out for this long? Like you don't have that here. You you have to learn. You have to, it, it's like the tech industry. You have to move fast and break things uh, to understand where you're going. And I think one of the things that I love about the kind of achievement that Halt and Catch Fire is, is that you have people going in and working out the show as they go and getting it very quickly. <laughs> you know, they, they really didn't go off the rails for very long and they didn't go very far off and before they brought it back and found something that really, really worked. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I have a lot of respect for shows that are able to maintain a certain level of intrigue over a 22-episode period. I mean, shows like Grey's Anatomy have always been very successful for that reason as well. But I'm with you. And one of the things that I wanted to quickly touch on before we move on to our highs and lows is the fact that whether it's still relevant for us to recommend the show with the context of Mad Men, because I feel like the reason the show didn't work as well as maybe expected was exactly because of the pressure. And we touched on this on episode one of it following in the footsteps of Mad Men, because it was the show that was essentially its spiritual predecessor. Now, I kind of still caveat that in the context of why maybe certain things develop the way that they do, but I'm equally glad that the show can step out of that shadow to be its own thing, and I feel like the reason a lot of people are discovering it and loving it now, it's exactly that. It's 
it's its own thing and it doesn't have any sort of pressure. Talked before about how Mad Men is an odd thing because it's sort of an ensemble show. There are enough strong secondary characters that you would call it that. But ultimately, it's the arc of this one guy who doesn't really learn very much <laughs> for seven seasons. But what is, I think, interesting about Hawk and Catch Fire is it starts off a bit like that because you've got Joe as this more Don Drapery character, and then everybody else seems to be initially maybe background to Joe. And then it shifts and it starts to shift and you start to realize that Joe is not a stable foundation on which to to rest your show because by nature, he is someone who is both visionary and a bit of a fraud, someone who likes to create things, but also cannot resist the urge to burn things down. So you can't rest a show on someone who's that kind of changeable and that difficult to get to know. Uh, Don, for all his many, 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 many faults, is at least a sort of fairly reliable bedrock for Mad Men to rest it on. You sort of know roughly where he's going to go with things. With Joe, the whole beauty of Joe is that you don't really, a hundred, you're never a hundred percent sure. And so when Halt and Catch Fire tries to be the show about Joe with the supporting characters occasionally, it wobbles. But when it becomes Joe's interactions with Gordon, with Donna, with Cameron, then Cameron's interactions with Gordon with Donna with Joe and it becomes this sort of mix and match of like four people who are much more evenly weighted at the end of season one than they are at the beginning of it all trying out different ways of interacting with each other and we have this promise at the end of season one of a new Cameron Donna dynamic and we're all really excited about that because it's a new way of revolving around these characters because of that I would say that it massively departs from its sort of madman shadow and become something that is really you're right completely incomparable to it i was just gonna say plus madman does not have carrie bichet so i'm sorry instant but fail there you go <laughs> what do we dive deeper into our highs and lows i feel like we both in our personal conversations because we've been talking about this show for a very long time but also over the you know the series of recording this podcast have always pointed out certain things like, oh, I forgot how much Cameron's immaturity annoyed me in the first few episodes. So I just wanted to start asking, what are the season's highest moments for you? Or what's the one moment that made you think, this is it, like, this is such a great season? Oh, that's a really good, yeah. We sort of mapped out what we wanted to talk about, but we haven't necessarily done the whole academic thing of writing it down and 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 finding those exact time goals in the episodes because we felt like this would be a more, I guess, nuanced discussion if we were able to go with our gut feeling in a way. And, and this is why I'm looking forward to you showing me your cards <laughs> so I can see if we agree and like maybe think about other uh, angles that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, I think for me, it was a, if I go back and look for it, will I be suckered into picking the moment that makes me sound like the right kind of fan? Or do you know what I mean? You're going to get suckered into justifying your opinion by creating a little academic text of why you like something as opposed to going, oh, that stood out. I really liked it. I feel like it's, do you know the episode that I really, really loved, weirdly, was Gordon getting the band together? Like at that point, I really, I don't know that it could have existed without all the episodes that came before it. And I think I have to give a very special shout out to the hurricane episode, which is amazing for many reasons. Um, not least because it seems to be a moment when having tried out a few different things, the show finally kind of works out where it's going with that hurricane thing. But I loved Gordon getting everyone together and finding 
something in himself because like from the beginning gordon was obviously the character that we laid into the most uh he does the most awful things and is the most predictably like terrible (laughs) of everyone but here is where you find the other side to him here is where you understand his marriage to donna you understand what she saw in him in the first place you understand what joe picked up on in his work that made him excited you understand why cameron agreed to work with such a guy with whom she has so little in common otherwise and i don't know there was something about that episode where it felt to me like everyone had reached a point where i could understand them better and make some predictions about where they would go but also understand why they were drawn to each other in this way when at the beginning you're like why why are these people even like why are they even in the same why is donna married to this guy why is cameron being such a brat like why didn't she just bugger off then uh (laughs) and there was something about the sort of gordon getting the band together and that end of the season that i found really exhilarating i really like that episode and probably for the same reasons i think the highs for me where i would say there were there were two sort of i guess I mean, there were tons of moments, but if I had to single two out, one or two out, definitely episode seven and all the scenes just around the vulnerability that Simon brought to the table. We talked about how much we loved that character for not only it being like finally someone diverse, right, to come into the show, but also the groundedness that he brought to the table. And to be honest, for me, mm. the groundedness in relation to the show mastering how interactions between the characters would be its best defining feature. What he does to the triangle between, I guess, himself, Joe, and Cameron, but also everything else that revolves around just little interactions between all of them really sort of spoke to me. And then on the tech side, I mean, for me, it was really thrilling to see how the machine was coming together and, in fact, really pumped me up for for context. In episode nine, I felt like it felt like a real thing, not just something that... Cameron and Gordon would argue over anymore, right? And I would also say episode two, episode two, we talked about it being like sort of a Tuesday, right? It's not Monday. You're not starting off the week and you're nowhere near the weekend and there's no hunting in between. It's kind of the shadow of episode one, but it was such a part two to the pilot episode and it gave us really great golden breadcrumbs of key character traits. Like if you remember sort of Cameron walking out of the store and the the guys from IBM saying, hey, hold on. Okay, fine. I'll pay for it. Those little moments, I think, really stood out to me. And those were the moments that I would think, I love this show and this is why I want to keep watching it. They made me remember all those things, having not watched it for five years when it originally aired. And there are quite a few episodes like that, aren't there? More than once we've said these two episodes almost seem to should be watched together as almost like one feature length episode one and two are like that and then you've got the the kind of like the bit around the hurricane that that you've got a kind of two-hander not two-hander but you've got a kind of two-parter episode there that could be watched together with its predecessor and i i think maybe that was a benefit of binging was that i always sort of seemed to get the two part episodes together in little chunks yeah and then breaking it down then watching it bit by bit can sometimes highlight some of the flaws. But then you go, well, actually, it's only really fair to see this as part of a whole. Like it's never, I mean, obviously it's the premise of the podcast and there's lots of reasons why we watch TV episodically. But in a way, it's only fair when you get to the end of the season and you can look at it as a whole and go, okay, this this jigsaw piece fitted in quite nicely to the puzzle. And I think that I liked the Comdex episodes a little bit more than you did. 
the the kind of coalescence of all this kind of bringing it together. So in some ways it's kind of not a surprise to me that the, the high point for me was just before that, whereas the high yeah. point for you was more spread out over the season. You're right. I mean, Convicts for me was a bit, it wasn't a bad episode. It was underwhelming from what I was expecting it to be, even though I had already watched it. But like we said, we don't really remember much of it. I think it was a really well done episode. The problem was that it wasn't clear by then what would make these characters think success look like. And so by the time the finale aired, you could see that actually whatever they had achieved was not necessarily what was going to keep them together. Yeah, it's really difficult to do that, by the way. I should I should say oh, it's totally. really, when the show's stated premise is this is going to end in flames. Like the whole premise, the name, that bit where it explains the piece of code and all the rest of it, the whole premise of the show is about failure. And like, how do you do failure and make it exciting? Like, how do you do crashing and burning and make it work and make you want to watch more of it. Make you want to watch more failure. Totally. And again, the show has done such a great show in cementing the characters that all these things can fade in the background a little bit more than maybe in other shows. And you're right. I mean, it's so easy for us to sit in our comfy chairs with our seagulls and our um, moaning cats. Um, <laughs> that's, that's yours. And pick it apart. And the reason I think we're able to, it's because it's such a well-crafted show that we are able to sort of part some of the structure and, and admire some of those elements and know that the show's brilliance hasn't translated to every single episode. And, you know, another learning experience for me, stepping away from what we're seeing on camera, has just been the focus we've placed on understanding who was behind the camera, who was writing and directing each episode, because I think that's another thing that is very easy to look at and very hard to put together. You know, the unique look that the show gave us in everything, right? Production values, camera work, directing, costumes, set pieces. It's been so interesting to understand the talent behind the camera for us to actually make more of an educated observation on some of the things that we were seeing on camera. Absolutely. And I think that this is the kind of the wonder, the miracle of TV is that any of this ever happens because so most of my other culture writing is on film where, yeah, you might have several rounds of writers, but inevitably you've got like a small cluster. You rarely see more than like three names on the, the writer's uh, list uh, credits and it's usually only one or maybe two. You get used to the idea that there is one director who is going to set the vision and tone for the whole piece, one cinematographer, a static cast who are going to be there from the beginning of the film to the end of the film, you're very used to the idea that there is an overarching vision. And yes, there might be studio interference or there might be kind of, particularly with some of the, the kind of big budget stuff, there might be studio push. But while films are made by hundreds, thousands of people, you always get the idea that there is a kind of unifying vision somewhere. And the films that go wrong are the ones where the unifying vision got knocked out of kilter, right? I agree with you. And actually, just a small side note, I watched Bombshell yesterday. For those that haven't seen it, it's a film about the real world of Roger Ailes and Fox News. But the interesting thing was I watched The Loudest Voice, which is essentially based on the same book mm. that exposes Roger Ailes over a seven-episode limited series. And my God, did I prefer the TV show over the film just because, I mean, the film had Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie. I mean, it's got, it had tons of A-listers and it was really well done to an extent. But the show was able to dive deep into so many things that you just cannot do on film. And so I think Halt and Catch Fire taking on film cues in terms of certain styles or the way that maybe they managed to get a director or a writer to write and direct two episodes that would go together works so much better as a season just because you have 
all these little bits in between and you're able to stretch it out to further dive deeper where you need to. What's miraculous about TV is that we put, instead of on the director, we put the vision onto the showrunners. Yeah, yeah. But showrunners are often doing another job as well. They're often writing their, you know, there's there's lots of other things going on at the same time. And to me, with the constant changes in the writer's room, which is often much bigger than it is on film, in the changes of director from week to week, and in all of that time, not knowing if you'll ever get to the end of the story, right? At least when you start making a film, if it's financed and greenlit, you know that you're going to get from the beginning of the story to the end of it, yeah. probably. It does happen that things get cut off early, but not very often. But when you're starting out in the first season of something, you have absolutely no idea if you're going to get to take it to where you want it to go. You might not even have a full idea of exactly where that point is yet. And it's it's semi-miraculous to me that any of this ever comes together. And, you know, for Rogers and Cantwell, correct me if I'm wrong, this was their first big show running I think so, yeah. experience. They both worked for Disney. They'd obviously worked on other stuff, but I don't think they'd been fully responsible for a project in the way that they were with this one before. So even when we're sitting here, like pulling at the threads of season one going, oh, they got a bit wonky here, or they, you know, there was a bit here that I didn't quite understand, or that seems a bit weird and experimental. The fact that the whole season works so brilliantly well is, is extraordinary and why I carried on watching and why I love it as much as I do. So on that note, what are some of the lows that you can point out after having seen it all? So there's a bit sort of between episode three and four where I don't think they knew whose episode they were doing always, or they weren't entirely clear what they wanted to do with the character who the focus was on. And there's things that I directorially, like visually, that I really love about episode three and things about it story-wise where I'm like, do we do we know more about Cameron in, in the course of this episode than we really started with? Do we know that much more about her? Do we understand much more about her? Or is it, or have we just kind of gone, oh, we're going to have a little moment for the visuals to kind of carry us through this, which is nice. It's still lovely to look at. I just didn't feel as attached to the story or the characters in those couple of episodes while they were working out dynamics, I think. I mean, that's how it felt to me. It felt to me like they were going, let's try putting this person in a room with this person and working it out. But it hadn't, how they did that hadn't quite clicked. Like I didn't feel like we had a fully fledged Donna. We didn't have a complete understanding of Cameron yet. Gordon is still not really he's still just like pretty dreadful and and sort of feeble and yeah you're like oh can we really put up with this guy being like this for for episodes on end and joe is still an enigma so in some ways it i'm not entirely sure they could have done it differently because the whole point is to unlock these characters over the course of this season but it felt like at that point they weren't entirely sure which kind of strings they were going to pull on with each character yeah, I would agree with you. I feel like for me, episode three, for example, was one of the low points of the season. Just the fact that we had a lot of characters suddenly introduced at once and a few things didn't really make sense. Like if you remember, like Cameron showed up in like a hotel room somewhere because the whole fiasco with the with the drives, it was in episode three. But same dynamic around the fact that a lot of characters were introduced. I feel like Cameron was one of the more immature, maybe more stereotypical characters introduced in the beginning of the season. And actually, we touched on this on the pilot episode where 
we'll talk on we'll talk about the characters in a second, but Cameron features very little in the pilot episode. And now looking back at how she was in the sequential episodes, it was a bit off-putting, I guess. It was it reminded me how stereotypical she was, et cetera, and how those small dosages really helped me get into the show without being put off by the characters. Um, but could that have been avoided? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's really hard to tell. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and rewrite the show. Um, only Game of Thrones, only that finale deserves that treatment. I think for me, you're right in terms of maybe things not really clicking because the characters were not in a place that could click with that much just yet. And so maybe the lowest points for me were episodes like three or five that maybe felt a bit fillery where they didn't really give us much and they were maybe going around in circles. Episode three had the whole Lulu thing. And that's the episode that also gave us info about Joe being bisexual, for example. And that's just kind of like... We forget about that and, and how that that stuff comes through. I mean, the whole Joe getting beat up situation. That as a plot point, that's probably my lowest plot point of the whole thing because I just didn't see the point in it. Like it didn't really reveal anything about Joe that we didn't already know, which is that he goes through trauma and like he has scars all over his chest, man. We know he goes through trauma and comes back from it. Like getting beaten up again doesn't really show us anything. And the fact that we still to this day aren't sure whether Nathan or Boz was supposed to be behind that. Uh, if it was Yeah. If it was Boz, I don't like it. <laughs> no, but also what was the motive, right? Like was it his sexual preferences or was it the fact that he yeah. was having a little bit too much sway in the way things were going at court? Yeah, and it felt like le later on you've got Boz punching someone for for being homophobic so you feel like maybe you're supposed to retrospectively think it was about losing his position in the company but then you see that he's willing to throw himself on his sword just to make this project work so i don't know if like boz kind of deserves his own conversation <laughs> his own episode almost because he is maybe the least consistent it, like if they're playing around a bit at the beginning and they don't really understand if Cameron's going to be bratty or not and they don't really know how domestic Donna is going to be and almost all the extra characters that are introduced yeah. in the early episode are to do with Donna. They round out Donna. They're her parents. It's her boss. You know, they're all kind of extra accompaniments to Donna and she gets her development very late in the season. She gets it like she gets to put her her foot on the pedal really late and really the last episode is going you ain't seen nothing yet we're going to see some more of donna because she's going to get, move into this new role here she is with her hair tied up there's a whole other side to donna that we're about to find but like if all the characters i think it's probably boz that is the most inconsistent or undergoes the biggest uh changes over the course of the season from someone who starts out as a kind of texas good old boy then may or may not be orchestrating people being beaten up uh, and then, like, embezzles <laughs> to save a project. Yeah, it goes to jail for the whole thing. Well, let, let's talk about our sort of biggest surprises in terms of characters, because one of the things I really like about the show is how they have managed to, in just over 10 episodes, really just the characters do not end where they've started. And obviously, that's the whole point of a narrative. But the way, what they've done here, it is done in a reasonable, consistent way, I would say. I mean, none of the characters feel like except for the again the boss embezzlement is weird because it happened off camera but nothing was off the table like you wouldn't think oh my god what like 
Cameron is suddenly, no, like it's been building up to all these things. And for me, Boss, actually, Boss and Donna have been the underdogs in a show that is about underdogs, which is kind of ironic that I think we pointed out in the pilot in the beginning of the podcast that everything revolved around Joe, right? All the character interactions, whether they were good or not, sort of revolved around Joe and then each other. And so when you have all these added characters thrown in and everyone is sparse throughout a scene to the point where maybe they don't even interact with each other, that's where the episodes kind of tend to fall apart because we're not necessarily seeing those reactions that have been so good up until that point. For me, Cameron has probably been the biggest surprise just because she starts out as this kind of, you know, you've said it, bratty entitled immature child and she really does go through things and she stands up for herself and she learns from others and she just kind of ends it up in a place where she can feel comfortable with herself and people around her i mean let's not forget we met her in a random arcade with no one around her and we end the season with a room full of people that are waiting to hear her talk and that to me is such a great evolution of this character yeah I, I think that's a really very good point about Cameron is that she knows from the beginning what her principles are right like when we meet her in the lecture hall she is already clearly quite cocky quite able to understand the future as she sees it we know that she's got a kind of visionary spark and that's what Joe is attracted to but by the end of it she's learned to have not just principles, but actually the courage to do something with them. So she's learned to kind of stand on her own two feet. And that's a really big, it's a big arc, but it's a true one. It feels authentic. It feels like something that someone like her would do. And I think hers is probably the biggest shift in terms of, I mean, I know Donna does this dramatic thing of giving up her job and going to to work for her. But Donna from the beginning has been impatient. You can see that she's a bit done and so you can sense a change coming with her. Like, you don't know what it's going to be exactly, but you can sense that she is a little bit done with where she is. So for her doing that didn't seem as big a leap as Cameron going from like bratty kid messing things up to I'm going to start a movement. I'm going to start a movement. I'm going to have people rely, me, the individual, the isolated, the always doing things my own way is going to start a collective and try. And, you know, she does say that she's not the boss and she's not going to try and lead them. But you know that she is because like when has her opinion ever not, you know, she throws her toys out the pram every time her opinion isn't, isn't taken. So like, we know that she is going to do that, but she steps up in a way that you don't necessarily see coming in the first episodes. So, Gordon. Gordon. Because I am thinking about this, you know, right now as, as we're, we're chatting through these characters, and I think Gordon goes through all these experiences, and yes, he's definitely not where he started. I mean, we met him in a parking lot where he was getting pissed off because Joe took over to then potentially running the whole thing. I don't necessarily feel like he's evolved that much, though, because... The fact that he doesn't know what's next and the fact that everyone around him has, no. except Donna, has left. And I think Donna didn't leave because she made a mistake. And so she's trying to almost win him back. The weird thing with Gordon is that I think he evolves in terms of what he does, but not in terms of who he is. Which I think is a, when I say it's weird, I mean, it's weird when you look at it from the outside as another human being. It's is actually very authentic. Most of us do this. We evolve in what we do, but not yeah, who yeah, we yeah. are. And so he gets everything he wants and then doesn't know what on earth to do with it. Um, 
the one thing that I really appreciated with Gordon this time around, because I had a sort of memory in my head of Gordon yeah, as just generically we... being the worst. <laughs> yeah. Like in my head, I was like, oh, Gordon's the worst. And I felt that a lot in the first few episodes. I was like, oh, Same. this guy. And then I'd forgotten what Gordon can be like when he's got the kind of bit between his teeth and he really wants to do something and he's excited by something. And I'd forgotten that he's capable of galvanizing other people and exciting other people, which he manages. He talks around Cameron and he goes for her first, which is strategically quite smart because if he can get her on board, he knows he can get Joe on board. Um, he doesn't even try to get Donna on board. She invites herself uh, because he constantly underestimates Donna, but also because I think he's very scared of rocking the boat there because he knows he's onto a good thing with Donna and he just does not want to doesn't want to mess it up. Yeah, I think our problem with Gordon has always been the lack of self awareness that drives him to make all these decisions and you know piss all these people off. I mean, remember episode five with the Japanese, yeah. and it's just like Gordon, no, or even with Simon yeah. the casing. But I agree with you that not only was I pleasantly surprised, and I would even say wrong about feeling the way that I did throughout the first few episodes, which, I mean, I still feel, but I feel like he's grown on me more. But also, Gordon has gotten the most sort of conceptual, abstract um, treatment, I feel like, over the course of the show. If you look back at the the dream sequences, the sort of spark mm -hmm. elements, the hurricane, oh God, that cabbage patch. And so when you see him, sort of when his mood flips from one to the other, it's actually quite exciting just because you just don't know where this guy is going to go next. And I feel like that's more than Joe, for example, who is more calculated and strategic and just sort of samey throughout. And these are not criticisms to the characters. This is the way they are. And so what we're picking out here and you know what I'm picking out are the things that help keep the narrative exciting. And I think those volatile behaviors from Gordon have actually kept things a little bit exciting. And you know, almost to the extent where maybe even for Donna, although for Donna the thing was her coming out of her comfort zone, which in turn was kind of like a fake comfort zone. It's the one she had created to sort of not put herself out there to allow Gordon that space. And and I think that's why we resent Gordon as well, because Donna resents him. And we love Donna. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is I think if I had to kind of rank the characters, it's a very childish thing to do, but if I had to kind of rank the characters in order of how much I liked them and sort of enjoyed them in episode one, like Joe would probably be at the top. And I wouldn't know whether to differentiate that much between Cameron and Donna. Like naturally, as a mum who has worked in tech, I am sl slightly more drawn Donna. to Donna as an archetype than, than I am to Cameron. But Cameron had more to do. So I was kind of like fiddling between the two. And then Gordon would have been down at the bottom somewhere like, oh, yeah, the useless husband. OK. Uh, whereas by episode 10, like Gordon has gone up the chain. And I'm much like it's much harder for me to differentiate and like the only character I can say has really moved on their ranking is probably Joe has come down. I'm much less interested in what Joe has to do right now. Like I'm not not interested in him as a character, but I, he is less of a priority for me now because he sort of had his big moment and blown up his his truck and all the rest of it. And it's all very entertaining and very enjoyable. And Lee Pace is wonderful appreciation moment. But but I feel like he can take a back seat now. And, and the fact that the episode has him kind of walking off into the sunset and you're like well clearly he's going to come back he's the star of the show like when they have a season two we're going to get him back in again but i think through a very yeah. different lens 
than we've seen him before because he can't come back into to do the same thing again. Like we know he's not going to and he can't. And I'm glad about that because I, I'm much less interested in him running Cardiff or this and that and the other than I am in Gordon, who is now like everyone's now vying for attention. I can't rank them anymore because all of them have things about them that I'm interested to see what happens next. Like what happens when Donna finally makes the change that she's been threatening to make since episode one. And it's not the change of leaving her husband. It's the change of career, which is not necessarily like you see a big change coming. But I thought that she might leave Gordon and instead she left her job. Those moments are the ones that we were, I think, both like, oh, wow, that we didn't see that coming. And maybe what I think some of the characters needed more of, and this has to do with the fact that um, the showrunners were clearly writing things out and sort of feeling things out as they were trying different pairings, are those sort of aha moments that you get from planting those seeds very early on for those revelations to really kick in. I feel like maybe uh, to some degree they have, but they didn't feel as earned as maybe they should have. And I mean, for example, all the hunt stuff where Donna kisses him first and he ends up stealing the whole idea. It doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily feel earned because we didn't really see that coming from the very, very first moments. And I feel like it was the same when we had all the Joe elements around his mom and the relationship with his dad. I mean, I would have expected his dad to come in and steal his idea at, at the very last minute. And so when you look at other seasons of this very show and also other show, I feel like those moments are the ones that really keep me in and, and sort of cement the show as like, wow, this is amazing. It's like, it was there from the beginning. You just didn't see it until now. And I'm not saying the show is bad for that, but I think some of the season one elements could have benefited from that foresight of planting those seeds in a way that by the end of it, we were going to have some proper revelations around why that happened in the first place. Like why Joe was there. We still don't really know why Joe was there other than he went another project, right? It would have been great for that to be like, you know, um, and maybe we'll find out in the other seasons, but you know, I don't think we will. I feel like we're wrapping things up here. But those are the kind of things that I feel like the last few episodes were missing to really um, make the first half of the season amazing as a tie-in. Yeah, I will say Hunt, it, that whole subplot with Hunt is probably one of the least well-played-out bits. Um we said when Hunt was first introduced, we were like, wow, do we want to pack the entire backstory into a 30 second conversation? Or like there was a lot to, I'm um, like, yeah. clearly they had a, they had a, a lot of information that they needed to get across and having a very short season. I know I said earlier, it's, it's a massive bonus. It is. This is the one bit where it was a bit of a disadvantage was that we had a lot to unpack very quickly with Hunt. And so we never really understand his motivation like yes looking back you can see that the reason that he turns up disheveled outside donna's house is because he's been working with her neighbor which was a that was a little twist that that were like just stuck in the knife quite nicely there um but that whole kind of bait and switch with isn't an affair no it's corporate corporate espionage but it doesn't really explain like we don't know anything about hunt's motivations and I don't know if I just feel like we should have because we spent enough time with him or just because I want more of Scott Michael Foster and everything. Yes. Whatever whatever it is. Although the above. He's so great. Whatever it is, I just felt like I didn't really understand why he did that. It's not like the pro yeah, the project was going to be lucrative, but it wasn't 
I don't know. I also feel like that about Nathan Carter, for example. And I keep talking about how much I dislike him as a as an actor oh, and as a, such a and as a character. character. Being disrespectful to anyone, but I think he took away of the shine. You know, Boss has. I mean, by the end of it, we we were loving Boss, and I feel like he was such an an underrated gem from episode one that we forgot was even in the pilot all the way through and so i think the nathan carter stuff for him to come in, in the beginning and then in the end and then a bit in the middle of episode three to then be like boy don't talk to me like that it's kind of like eh, okay um you could have had a different type of involvement where maybe it would have been great for him to have sold the whole freaking thing to ibm under their noses I, it felt like a little touch of dallas in a show that hadn't really done that <laughs> <laughs> it it hadn't really had a soap opera element and then it just had this kind of slightly yeah weird one i mean looking ahead to season 2 there are some things that we we even if we d- hadn't watched it any, ever before that we could already assume so we know that toby huss is in the opening credits at this point so we can only assume that boz is going to make a comeback a triumphant return uh which is going to be interesting because then how do you make a comeback from potentially maybe question mark going to prison for embezzlement makes you a bit of a will there be a time jump also he's a he's a salesman right so like how do you fit a salesman into this world all over again when the sale is done and when they did it without him uh in the end because that's also joe's role and then you know they actually teased out i thought very nicely the tension between him and joe and who gets to take credit for what but now it's like come to an abrupt end like what what do we do with him but it's irrelevant but you feel like you know that because he's in the in the main credits it's very unlikely that he's going to disappear between one season and the next i however do not expect to ever see hunt again um i feel like they dispensed with that storyline and it was a kill your darlings, fine, let's go. <laughs> let's just pretend that didn't happen. Um, I do expect to see Donna's parents again, uh, especially now that she's made this big life change of becoming less kind of corporate lady in a nice blouse and pencil skirt to lady in jeans and and head wrap. I feel like we're going to see something else there. I would have thought not. Actually, I, thought I mean, so I because hope so. I really like Anita too. Her parents are there as, as class markers, right? They very much keep reminding us that Donna comes from more money and more success I know, but, than Gordon does. But does that matter anymore that she's chosen Gordon over that lifestyle? That's the thing. She's always been there pulling, tugging for her to go back on that side. And I feel like now that she's made that decision... I don't know. Do we need them? I don't know. I kind of expect to see them again. I think partly because even after the Hunt episode where her mother was clearly there just to fill in more backstory about Hunt, she then later on has that episode where after the kiss, or is it just before where she talks to her mom about what happened? And I feel like there's more to that relationship that we're going to see and that her parents having got used to bankrolling Gordon's crazy ideas, now that they don't have to do that because his crazy idea has paid off and presumably as head of Cardiff, he's going to be making like decent money. There's going to be, you know, they're going to be comfortable. They won't have to go to her parents for help anymore. I wonder if they're going to, I don't know. I feel like there's still room for them to come in and do something. And I guess it all depends on what does Donna's work change mean for her dynamic with Gordon? Because we've seen their marriage go from absolute rock bottom to big reconciliation to a, another big wobble to now what appears to be another reconciliation. And I guess whether or not they come back into it depends on how Donna finding self-fulfillment impacts on her marriage to Gordon. I was going to say, I think the one thing that Donna 
that this dynamic will benefit in terms of having them back would be Donna being able to maybe stand up to them a little bit more. And Gordon being able to stand up to them. Gordon being able to, now that he's had some financial success and one of his ideas has paid off. Like, can he, like the last time he saw his father-in-law, he was groveling and apologizing for the whole Japanese fiasco. So like, and he was going to him for help. Do we now get to see Gordon standing off and going like, okay, I've had my success now. You can't hold it over me anymore. Like the symphonic has been smashed. The giant has sold. End of story. The piano has been played. The piano has been played. The last chord. Uh, (laughs) So I don't know. I feel like of all the little tiny sideline characters, they're the ones that stood out for me as people who had potential to come back. But it was Boz that I was like, oh, well, clearly you are now. It's like we got used to thinking of it as being four main characters, but I like can see from the opening credits that you guys are trying to sell me on five main characters. And let's see. Let's see if that, that can happen. I think we're also going to see a lot more of Yo-Yo and Lev. They're they're the guys that sort of That's true. joined the show maybe halfway through the season. I mean, they're pleasantly fine. I don't necessarily think that they have added much more other than sort of for Cameron to have like her own support system. And that's not to say I don't like them. I actually really do. And I hope that we get to see more of the coder um, underworld through their lens. And I don't know about Cameron's vodka friend, but I'm okay if she doesn't come back. Yeah, I feel like they the fact that she came back once at all was a like, oh, some consistency. And then I never expected to see her again. But I think the coders also provide like I what I really liked about especially those latter half episodes where I felt they found their feet is that they there was more humor in them. There is genuine humor in some of those scenes. Like Gordon says some genuinely funny things when he's like with Cameron telling her about his history with Donna. Donna getting baked is very funny. Yeah. Joe scamming the printer guys out of their shrimp and their sweet is very funny. And I feel like the coders might be being set up to be a bit of comic relief because it's intense. You need that. You need a couple of people to kind of be jokey and also... Cameron gets a bit up her own ass. We know this. She gets a bit carried away with her own vision. And you get, certainly in in sort of, Lev is, is a bit more, um, it's a bit more of a backseat. But in Yo-Yo, you get someone who's prepared to go, well, that's BS. Don't do that. And I wonder if we're going to see a guy who starts to challenge some of Cameron's professional ideas and and you know sort of challenge the way and the direction that she's taking things like we know donna's not afraid to say what she thinks like she's certainly done that a few times and then there's that moment where she comes to the conference at work and just blurts out what she thinks and she certainly says it to gordon's face um we know that she can't keep her feelings under wraps and her and cameron definitely like in that kind of awkward sort of catfight standoff that i wasn't a big fan of uh, <laughs> they you know she's we certainly know she's Exactly. We certainly know both of them are happy to say what they think, but it feels like the coders, like it's even in that shot, aren't they on the opposite side of the room from each other? Donna comes in on one door and Cameron's on the other and the coders are in the middle. And you you almost feel like there's going to be like an emotional fight over who gets the, it's like the Pied Piper. Who's going to get to be the Pied Piper? Who's going to carry the coders? The coders are the children of the village. Who's going to carry them with them <laughs> off to the to the caves? You know, I, I mean, I'm projecting here and I honestly cannot, like, I can't remember the difference between the plot points in season two and season three. So who knows? I might be entirely making up a new show here. Mm-hmm. 
So we ambushed Christopher Kentwell on Twitter, <laughs> by which I mean we we tweeted him a question and he very kindly replied. And then he replied and we started, yeah, we were like, okay, well, what about yeah. this and that? And then here we are. We got like a two minute Q&A out of him, which, um, and also a absolute not promise that he might maybe possibly come on and chat to us one day. Yes. But I'm also aware that, and that this was something that somehow I had missed entirely. Back in July, they announced it and I only just caught up. He is working on a new show. So he's working on Paper Girls, which is for Amazon with Rogers again. So we get to see their uh, their work and now this time adapting something from a, from a graphic novel, I think it is. So now an adaptation rather than their original idea. So really excited and interested to see that. So uh, thank goodness for this Q&A to tell me that that was coming up. And there is hope after this bloody pandemic is over that we will see something worth seeing. So one thing he did do uh, was answer a question that we had been wondering about, which was, when did they know they were getting season two? We've said over and over again, it's like, we don't know if they knew. We don't know that they didn't know. I think we categorically know now they did not know that they were getting season two. So to read out his answer, it is, no, we waited anxiously as the entire season aired. We got some rough reviews and ratings. It was an anxious wait and a hard summer, 2014. A few weeks after the finale aired, they finally renewed us, but also wanted to hear about how we plan to alter our approach to the season series. First of all, Damn, now we know. And it puts things into perspective. And and we told them this. We said, this is something that we've been thinking about while rewatching and how to approach something like the season finale. And he told us to that point, he said, makes sense. I am extremely proud of the pilot, almost like a contained movie. It felt like the best version of that first episode Rogers and I had conceived. But for me, the show first really clicked as a series when Joe took a sledgehammer into the car at the end of 105. And I mean, what made me feel good about this? And I actually said that to him. It was like on the podcast, we've been talking about how we felt like you came out the gate with this amazing start and end to the series. But there was a little bit in the early, like pre-hurricane episodes where it felt a bit experimental and a bit like there was a bit of uncertainty about where the show was going. And, and you know, he was, he was pretty cool about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and... I felt like like it was a relief to us to know that we were probably reading it correctly. And yeah. when I said that to him, he responded, we felt in the room that we truly, quote, discovered the real heart and tone of the series by 106. So our writing became geared towards that. And it was more fun. After season one, we told AMC we were going to set the table so that we could do as much of that tone and feeling as possible. So definitely wow. confirming the idea that they needed more fun in it yeah like that humorous vibe and i was it was like it was really reassuring to hear that we'd kind of read this correctly and we weren't like digging into things that weren't there like we genuinely were observing what was was happening and i really feel like i can understand why that sledgehammer moment was like a big big moment for him i think the hurricane really like nailed it down but it's it's good to know that both Co uh, showrunner and two random idiots running a podcast feel the same way about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's pretty brave from AMC to wait until the entire series aired yeah. before making a sort of an educated decision. I mean, we've seen shows get pulled after pilots, right? And we touched on the fact that the show had 50% of its audience by the time the finale aired. Of course, I couldn't help myself and I jumped in with Was Donna always the writer's favorite? 
To which he responded, different characters for different writers. And I wish that he told us who his favorite was, but maybe we should save that question for when... For when he's on. Yeah, yeah. if we can dream that he actually ever will make it to, to our little podcast corner, then maybe we can ask him what his favorite character is. Because, um, I, I mean, I, I guess I'd love to know more about actually which bits he wrote and which bits Rogers wrote and then what how they interacted with other people's writing. Because speaking of other people's writing, this wasn't actually a question from us. This was somebody else who came into the thread and said, what's the story behind the two printer guys? Uh, because there seems to yeah, be some sort of story complex. online about how they might be based on a real thing. And uh, Christopher Cantwell replied, I don't remember. I think it was completely an invention of Jason Cahill's, the writer. Uh, so again, it would be really fascinating to know how as writers and showrunners, they interacted with other people's writing and what they thought of these little things and that, that came in. And you feel like if we ever go back to Comdex again, like we don't know if we'll go back there in the future, but those guys will be there waiting <laughs> with their printer, their uh, shit printer. I know, right? Going back to your point about them figuring things out. I mean, I'm genuinely interested in the in the TV making process in terms of how different writers come up with different things and what that process is like for checks and balances, for lack of a better word. So the last question we were able to ask him was, what was it like working with Campanella on the pilot and throughout the series? And he responded, he is the best, a genius, and one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. He also has an incredible singing voice. I, like I love that. that detail. I know, it was like, <laughs> guys, we, we couldn't make this up if we tried. And I mean, look, we should say there's a bit of Argentinian pride here. You know, my my esteemed co-host, my esteemed co-host hails from uh, Argentina. And also for, for a brief moment, we found ourselves in the top 10 podcasts for after shows in Argentina. So I feel like, thank you out there, Argentina. We love you guys. Uh, that Clearly it was meant to be. And actually we owe, uh, we both admitted that we haven't seen Campanella's Oscar winning uh, film so we both have committed to going to track that down and uh, and go and watch it. Remind me the title. The Secret in Their Eyes. The Secret in Their Eyes probably has a different title yep. in Spanish. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're out there and you haven't seen it either, come. Yeah, we should all watch it. Let's chat about it on Twitter. Thank you, Christopher Cantwell, for and apologies for this for this ambush. Honestly, we're so thrilled to sort of get some information on the show that I think a lot of people have been wondering about since it aired more than five years ago. So, you know, we're nerds. We love this kind of thing. And I think continues to make such a great connection um, with, with with the people that are making it. And for me, the, the really cool thing, other than the fact that he, you know, he gave a shit and answered our tweets was the fact that they really had conceived this as sort of individual almost movies or films when they approached the show and we touched on this in the last episode and how he said that viral thread of what's the best TV finale of all time. And he was like, mine. And I think he, he should be part of the show. He's very honest. I think about some of these things. That's what I found really refreshing around. Well, this is where it clicked in for me. And, and, you know, as a, as a creator of something, it must be very weird to have to think about when, what you're doing makes sense. If that makes sense. Absolutely. And I mean, like, obviously, my the writing that I do in my day to day life is nothing. There's nothing like screenwriting. So I do copywriting for people and I do some of my own fiction writing, but it's not uh, in screenplay format. And 
one of the things that you want to do is you want to give things the overnight test, right? You want to walk away from them, come back, see what's working, try and see it with fresh eyes. And when you work in a writer's room, I don't know, like, it's not just your over, overnight test, it's everyone's overnight test. And there's all sorts of other things going on. And then you've got the the dynamic of being a showrunner and having to see how the whole thing plays out and being able to look back at the process, even a year later, and now six years later, or seven years later, and go, that was when we got it. And I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to dig into more of um, why, like, whether they knew in that moment that it was clicking or whether um, it just felt like more fun and felt a bit easier or, you know, was it, was it when AMC kind of put them against the wall and kind of went, okay, but what are you going to change? Come on. Uh, that they realized, or was it so organic that they knew in the moment that it was happening? Um, and that, that whole thing is that whole thing about writing is fascinating to me. I, I went to a, a screenwriting lecture uh from Taika Waititi a while back about a year ago and he was saying the best thing that you can do with writing is the one thing that writers never want to hear which is that you've written something now stick it in a drawer and don't look at it for a year <laughs> and, and do something else uh and you know when you're working on a tv show like this and when you get uh, sort of uh, signed for a second season you don't have time to put things in a drawer for a year and you've got lots of different people writing and lots of people directing and and amc going mm, yeah but we can't have this rating situation again and i i just don't know how you have find the space in yourself as a creative to be able to step back from your work enough with a little bit of time and space allowed to go this works this doesn't work yeah, and the reality is that you won't know until it's out there. I mean, in that interview that you sent me, he talked about the fact that it took him about two and a half years for them to actually develop the show and that pilot. And and he gave some funny anecdotes around how he knew people and friends that were like, this is great. And I binged it in like a week. And he was like, wow, you just binged uh, something that took me years in, you know, in whatever minutes that is. And I think uh, there's a lot of respect for that kind of for that kind of work and yeah i hope i hope he forgives me for binging since it's now my third watch uh <laughs> it's like I, I, put, I put the work back in chris it's okay chris thank you come on the show whenever um whenever you want i mean oh open invitation forever you can be here every week if you want you definitely have better things to say about it than we will and and toby <laughs> we confused him <laughs> we confused him we put a we, we put out boss appreciation moment and he was like what the f so come on the show we'll explain <laughs> Yeah, we'll explain everything if you just hop on the show with two random people an ocean away. We'll uh, we'll happily explain. Although I discovered in the course of that, I hadn't made the connection between Toby Huss as, as Bosworth and Toby Huss as Artie, the strongest man in the world in The Adventures of Pete and Pete. And I put this out there for anyone else who may have watched that when they were younger. Uh, but yeah, Artie is a very, very unique character. If, can you be very unique? You are unique or you're not. Um, but he's definitely an interesting character and, uh, I encourage you to go back and watch Pete and Pete again and rediscover Artie, the strongest man in the world and think about the West, the kind of cowboy salesman that he's going to become. Thank God the embezzlement. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for sticking around with us. If this is the first time you are listening to our podcast, stay tuned for season two. We're going to continue on no matter what Amazon does with the show right until the finale. Find ways to watch it. I know Amazon are trying to like get in our way right now, but we're not going to let them stop us. We're doing our own little mutiny here. Follow us on Twitter. T-T-T-G-Y-T-T-T. -T 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 -T.
G-Y, there you go. She said it. Okay, cool. Follow us for just any yeah. thoughts you might have on the podcast. Give us feedback. We love being challenged on the things we discuss that really opens up our horizon. And there's nothing more that uh, we enjoy than having this open discussion. So thank you very much. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you liked it. And leave a review if you can on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to grow and reach more hardcore fans and maybe get them to put the show back on Amazon or somewhere else. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be back with season two soon.